Hi guys, welcome to the Original Judo Podcast. I'm James Austin and I am joined this week by two guests. Uh, delighted first of all to have former Scottish champion Patrick Dawson on the line. Hi Pat, how you doing? I'm good, thanks James. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. I will and... have to correct you though, I was never Scottish champion. <laughs> never Scottish champion. <laughs> Genuinely never Scottish champion. Oh, it was a it was a tough run. Um <laughs> And delighted from all the way across the Atlantic. That is that is the right ocean, isn't it, Pat? I think so. Yep. We have the wonderful dulcet tones of Canada's under ninety kilos, Zach Burt. Zach, how are you doing? I am well, thanks, James. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, mate. Um start off, thank you so much for for joining us. Uh the connection was Pat, he put us in touch and then uh arm wrestled his way to joining in this conversation <laughs> uh honored to be here thank you for having me yeah no absolute pleasure so if people don't know uh too much about you i know a lot of guys who listen are this side of the water can you uh tell us a little bit about how you got started in judo and then uh, some of your best performances yeah so my dad competed uh basically just nationally, uh, a little bit internationally, but mostly just nationally, um, and loved it. And he got me involved when I was about six years old. And then in 2002, he opened up his own dojo. And from there, I, uh, I just kind of kept going on. I, I'm not a great athlete. So I think I realized early on in life that, um, I had some skill and talent in judo and there was definitely uh none of that in any sport with a ball <laughs> so uh i stuck with judo i also enjoyed it um and then 20 years later here i am so is it a family sport i see that uh is your sister part of the national team as well yes yeah my sister emily is also on the national team for under 70 um my brother Joe, who was one year younger than me, who was at the Commonwealth Games with Pat actually, competed in eighty one and ninety as well and was national team. He stopped about uh three or four years ago. Um and then my other sister Mackenzie was briefly national team. She was more of a uh really good junior player and then seniors when she started uh to step away and focus on studies and whatnot. Oh wow. Um and yeah, what do you feel are some of your kind of best performances, maybe best results to date? Uh, off the top of my head, my Grand Slam medal in Abu Dhabi, uh, 2017. Um, my medal in Vise, the Belgian Open. I took a bronze there. Uh, my Pan Am medal, uh, maybe a year and a Glasgow European Open medal, which Pat was also there for. <laughs> Screaming from the hat stands because I was out in the second round. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, some great results there. Uh, just briefly, talking about Vise, that's Belgian Open. Uh, a lot of British fighters go every year, and it's the start of perhaps that European tour that a lot of players uh, jump in at. Mm-hmm. Is it something you do every year? Is it a one and done? Or have you been back? Have you been before? I only went the one time. I have done the camp 
once, and I've actually competed once. They weren't at the same time. The camp was uh, years later when I was 90. Uh, the event was the way we had planned out that tour was that was the very end of a long tour. I had done uh, Tunisia. I think it was a Grand Prix. And then after that, my brother and I went to uh, F1 <laughs> Paris, and we trained in the EG, which I call Fight Club, <laughs> Underground Fight Club for two weeks. And uh, that really put uh, <laughs> hair on my chest. <laughs> and that was kind of the prep going into Vise at the end of the tour. And then uh, I had a really great day in Vise and then uh, came home after that and then never, never competed again in it. No. Ah, it's only one I fought in a few times. How about yourself, Pat? I've been to Vise many, many times. <laughs> lots and lots of very fun coach trips um, from, <laughs> from Edinburgh. To, to Vizé, yeah, not not quite such a successful record for myself. Um, I don't think I ever made it past the fourth round. Uh, certainly, a medal at Vizé is as hard as many Grand Prix, and um, yeah, it was always one I wished I'd collected. James, how about you? I got a couple, but one and done. If you get a medal at that first one, never go back ever. That's, <laughs> no, it. That's enough. Yeah, I mean, we, I think we spoke briefly about Vizé the last time that. Um, that Reese was on James when you and I chatted a couple of weeks ago, and you know it's it's just such an absolutely mobbed tournament. Um, oh, the Japanese often send a junior team, and then people prepping for sort of the start of the tour, the start of the year, like like James said. Some of, I mean, the depth of European judo to yeah to get a medal on your first attempt, like James said, just to never go back. <laughs> go back. <laughs> so I'm glad I, I'm glad I made the right choice then. <laughs> yeah. So how's how's things going during coronavirus? How's judo during coronavirus in Canada? Uh, well, we're uh, our center, our national center, has been closed since middle of March, and all the provincial centers around Canada have been closed. There's no judo. Nobody's done judo since uh, middle of March, and uh, all the gyms have been closed. So uh, I've been doing a lot of uh, a lot more running than uh, I'd like. <laughs> awesome. What? Are you are you a, a full time athlete? Yes. Are you studying as well? Cool. And then I think the Canadian system is uh, similar to the the British system. I think you know a bit more, Pat. Is that right? Is it centralised over there? I, um, yeah. So I think one thing I really wanted to chat to Zach, Zach about was how the centralised system in Canada works because. Um, obviously, for some people in, in Britain, it comes along with sort of some of the politics and some of the decisions athletes made about going or not going to the centralized system. Um, there was obviously pre-existing centers in the UK um, and people felt strongly that that was the best place for them. I guess, Zach, for you in Canada, was centralization a choice? Could you have self-funded if you'd stayed in Ontario, which is where you're from, or, and not moved to Quebec? Um, and how do you feel it sort of affected you as an athlete? Do you feel it helped you? Certainly your results are, 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 are impressive and some of the Canadian systems results, men and women's team have both been really good recently. Uh, yeah, I think it's totally helped me because, uh, Canada is a massive country and even though it's quite big, we don't have a lot of people doing judo, unfortunately. So if we did the non-centralized system, you have the risk of you don't have any partners or you don't have you don't have any training partners really. So for example, um 
when I moved to Montreal, uh, I was now thrown in with guys like Antoine Van Portier, uh, Louis Kreber Gagnon, uh, Etienne Brienne. These guys are all high performance, you know, big names on the tour. So getting it, being able to fight them night in and night out, 100% helped my, uh, my career, my judo. Um, I know it was really tough, uh, the first year moving, going from, being, uh, you know, one of the best in Ontario to going to Montreal and being at the bottom of the food chain. <laughs> <laughs> so what were the challenges for you? Uh, man, so, uh, oh, where do you even start? <laughs> I, I grew up, I always tell people I matured later in life. I'm a late bloomer in almost every sense of the word. So when I moved to Montreal, uh, 2013, I was not the age mentally that I was, so it took me quite a bit, a uh, number of years to really figure out, like, just, you know, life skills in terms of living on your own, paying bills, uh, looking after yourself, being professional. That was the biggest thing for me is being professional. Like, you know, if you want to win your, your carding, which is when you get paid, basically, to be on the national team, you got to be professional. There's There's things that come with that responsibilities and whatnot, etiquette, uh, how you behave, how you handle yourself. And so that to me was something that was really important. And I worked really hard to get to where I am now in terms of handling myself or as best as I can as a professional. Um, but yeah. I've always really been interested in sort of the Canadian centralized system. I never made it across to Montreal when I was, when I was sort of over there. Um, I would have loved to step on the mat and sort of, because I practiced with a lot of you guys on the tour, like the 73 years got real strong for a bit before I retired. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, the 81s, like you said, Val Fortier and, and beyond and stuff. Um, do you think that sort of like there's quite a good set of examples for the, for the, you said you came in as sort of the younger guy or the sort of bottom of the food chain. Was there sort of good role models and was there good support for young players coming into the system? You know, unfortunately, uh, there wasn't when I was coming up. Uh, so the system when I, that I came through back then is a lot different than how it is now. It is much better now for juniors and cadets coming through than it was when I was coming through. When I was coming through, we didn't have the budget, the money, and the large staff. We had, you know, Nicholas Gill, Nico, who's the head coach, but he was kind of doing almost everything on his own. So if you're a junior cadet and you want to get noticed, good luck because he had his attention on his Olympic team, on his, the women's team, but he was doing everything. And so once I moved, it didn't really change from that. It only started to change as the years went on. And now we've got to a place where we have such a big coaching staff in Montreal. We have guys like Yanis Pavlowski on the mats. We have guys like Michelle Almeida, Sasha Marinovich, Nico, all these different players, uh, coaches on the mat that, um, all have different jobs and different groups to look after and whatnot. So there was none of that when I was coming through. And so um, I often say now that I think a lot of these kids are, don't understand how privileged they are or maybe, you know, I wish they a lot of them had gone through the system that I went through in terms of really testing their will or their character and being able to tough it out and keep going forward because you really didn't have much. You kind of were just on your own. Um, I mean, Antoine's always been a phenomenal role model, hands down, but – uh, one that was always good for me was, uh, Sasha Mamedovich. He was, uh, he's from, uh, the same province I'm from in Ontario. So I definitely looked up to him, uh, growing up and stuff like that. But I never really had one really, um, big role model. Nobody really like kind of 
took me aside when I moved and said, hey, man, like, welcome. You need anything? Let me know. There was none of that. So one thing that I did is when I decided to, to kind of get somewhere, I kind of took it upon myself to, I would say it's just part of my character, but really help the ones that were moving so that they had a, a positive uh, impact on the place and that they understood that they were welcomed. And then the way I look at it is if they're happy, we get a better reputation for the center and we get more people wanting to come, more people doing judo. And then all around it just, it just wins all the way around. That's how I look at it. So we got a lot of kids coming from Alberta uh, all over. And I always try and, you know, kind of uh, mentor and look after them and just tell them, you know, you guys need anything, you know, you know, and you know, this is how things go, whatnot. So uh, yeah, definitely a big part of it. Are, are people wanting uh the centralized system is it popular in canada there's a there's a lot of uh i guess bite back or pushback in the uk system um again there's a, several strong independent clubs um who've produced like world's european level medalists olympic medalists and there's a reluctance for people to become part of the centralized system and obviously over the last four years um it's been shown that you know you, you can get results using the centralized system, but is it is it something that there's fight back against in in yeah Canada? Uh, I would say it depends on who you ask. Uh, for example, for me, I know there was a bit of like uh, you know, not really a big fan of having to move to Montreal, but I mean it's only a five hour drive. It's not that <laughs> like difficult for me, like to get a bus and come back like it's 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 really smooth in that sense but then you have guys that are coming from bc or vancouver and it's a five and a half hour flight wow so, i think james you left there a five-hour drive i mean having spent a little bit of time in canada really only a five-hour drive is not that much like katie's parents drive three hours to get to costco and that's each way so like canada's <laughs> just so vast isn't it Zach? Yeah. yeah, but it's perspective, isn't it? I think if you were talking about a five-hour drive here, you 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 you're essentially talking about Scotland to the centre, aren't you? Do you do you know that drive well, James? I know that drive very well. I made it on a week, twice a week for two years. Um, <laughs> but I don't I don't think there's a lot of people in the UK who'd be talking about. Oh, it's quite easy for me to make that five hour drive. You know, people are upset about making a two hour journey to get to training. I think that is an interesting thing to think about as well, because the the drive absolutely is. I mean, the idea of driving five hours to squad or, you know, six hours to national squad training each, each month or quarter, you know, whatever we were required to do at the time was. Yeah, like it was it was, you know, you dreaded the drive because you had to step straight on the map. But and. One thing I feel might be slightly different is different with Canada is, you know, people in Britain were very established and had their had their sort of lives, but also their coaching and had sort of belief in the coaching that they had um, training partners, set up centers, whatever. Um, in Canada, you sort of identified that. I mean, undoubtedly, the Center for Excellence is in Quebec, is in Quebec, is in Montreal. Has there been from some players any feel that they'd like to have stayed with certain coaches or, you know, is there not a Canadian um, a couple of Canadian players that are allowed to train outside of the, of the center. Um, so how it works is basically you can train outside of the center. You don't have to move, but it's highly recommended because uh, we have a system called carding 
and carding applies to not just judo players, but all high performance athletes in Sport Canada. And what that, and then it's up to each governing body, each sport to come up with the criteria for how their carding works. So our board of directors decided, I don't know how many years ago, a long time before me, that if you were to accept carding, you had to move and live in Montreal because they want to force that centralized system. So you can stay outside, but then you're not going to have really many partners. You're not going to have, you know, an opportunity to get carding, which is money, right? You, you're, you're a paid athlete, signed contract. Um, so for example, Cleta Zupanzik has been carded before. And then after Rio, she said no and declined carding. And she now lives in the U.S. and trains under Jimmy Pedro in Boston. So she's still on the tour, but it's through her own pocket. And another strong center, like Jimmy's judo is, is solid and has documented results as well. For sure, for sure, for sure. It's amazing that they're strong enough, though, in the convictions that they won't give certain players that kind of leeway. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and possibly a difference there with maybe British British experience, because I know for myself, the two centers that, that were being pushed during my career were Dartford, um, everyone loves the Campanile Hotel, and um, and then Walsall, um, and there was some marvelous hotels in Walsall as well. Um, <laughs> but um, but before that, you know, British judo had centres elsewhere. Maybe James, like what what was the centre before? Was it? Um, oh, so you had Sheffield, you had High Wycombe, to yeah, to some degree. Um, and, and always the the talk was you're going to have to move there, and then Bisham Abbey. Bisham Abbey, that's it. And until you didn't have to move there and the, the ability to self-fund was given um, and, and British judo, I guess, didn't quite have the conviction, but potentially with a bigger group of players that were willing to self-fund by the sounds of it or willing to take that step. Yeah. Has, um, has it paid off for you, Zach? Yeah, for sure. Uh, this is where I was going to kind of go with this is that the way our system is, the way um, our numbers are so low in terms of how many people are doing judo or quality players are doing judo, if you're actually, if you want to be serious and go somewhere, you can't not move to Montreal and stay in Canada. You just can't. Like, maybe in some of the lower weight divisions, like maybe 48 kilo girls, if you're in Alberta, uh, Lethbridge has a great provincial program there. And, uh, but like as a big guy, there's no way you can, you can, like it just won't work. You have no partners. So, um, you're really forced. Like I accepted that, I mean, early high school that at some point I'd have to move to Montreal. So, um, I'm lucky in the sense, like I said, I don't have to get on a five and a half hour flight. Uh, I could still come home at points and it's not that difficult. Uh, it's really cheap to live in Montreal. It's a great city. I, I love it to death. It's awesome. Um, so there's definitely positives to it, uh, but yeah, like certain, like I know a lot of players that move from BC, they have a really hard time because it's just so different from what they're used to. Wow. And then um, you talked a bit about the expectations that they'd have of you of, of players in terms of your yeah, like behaviors and etiquette. Mm. Like how did, how did that change for you from being a, I guess a, a part-timer to going pro? Um, well, uh, so for me, I, I'm the oldest of a big family, which I'm sure you saw if you did the research there. Uh, I'm the oldest. And so, I mean, I've been told from day one, 
set that example kind of thing. That's just kind of been, I was born with that on my shoulders. And so moving and then kind of really not understanding how that works and then seeing guys like Antoine Valfortier kind of take on that kind of role really inspired me to then do the same thing, even though I'm a nobody compared to Antoine. But at the end of the day, one person can impact, you know, just a few. And I know that I do and I have. And so I, I try and, you know, tread carefully, so to speak, or really, you know, take that responsibility and, you know, help the kids, try and make the kids uh, enjoy it, you know, make the kids stay. When I hear talk of like, oh, it's not going well, I say, hey, you know, like what's going on, stuff like that, and uh, try and keep them in it because if we can just, you know, progress judo and have people, uh, I think you'll find that some people do fight the system, but I'm against that kind of talk because, uh I don't think the system is going to change. I really don't, especially in my lifetime. I think there's just no way. The way it is, the way the people are who's in charge, the way it's right, there's just – I don't think it's going to change. So I think fighting it is pointless. I think you're wasting your time, your energy. Why not just do what we can or do the best with what we have? And, you know, at the end of the day, you can make it work if you really want to. Do you think – I think one thing's really interesting there. Like my – my perception of, of Canadian judo, even before I lived there for a bit and got to know, you know, a few more of you, was that it, you know, that the head coach and the driving force for the sit, for the program came from Nico, came from Nick Gill, who, you know, I, I think very highly of, of Nicholas. Like I, he was always really, really pleasant and, and nice, um, to me and, and when I saw him on the tour. But very much he was the driving force for Canadian judo. And so is that what, you know, is that what you mean by, sort of how how it's run and 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 there's been sort of a bit of um what's the word I'm looking for like it's been constant do you know what I mean? he's been he's been involved for such a long time and done such a great job at producing that 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 judo Canada Canada have been happy with you know keeping that one keeping the sort of the way it's structured in place well you know uh Nakamura was the original head coach and he, when he immigrated from Japan, he came to Montreal, and that's where this kind of all started. And through that, he found Nico, who was born and raised in Montreal, and Nico, you know, phenomenal career. And then Nico kind of took over the reins and slowly over the years has moved up and up and up and up, and now he's CEO. And yes, he yes. wants to keep everything there. He wants to keep it centralized. He wants to keep the same system going. Um, so that's kind of what – uh, what it is, where it's at, and I just I don't see it ever really changing for a long time, at least in my time. And uh, the way it's built is, you know, Montreal is the centralized system. All the other provinces in in uh, Canada, they all have a regional center. So James runs one in Ontario. Yoan uh, Beaton runs one in Alberta, and their job is to build, take the best talent from each province, get them ready to move to Montreal. And that's kind of the, the goal of each uh, province. And for a population of only 35 million in such a huge country, it's undoubted for me that, that, that there's been success there because you've said there's so few high-level players. But, you know, for me, even at 73s, you used to go at the start of my career, you went, sweet, I've got a Canadian first round. And at the end of my career, you went, oh, no, I've got a Canadian first round. So, like, there's been undoubted change in, in the results. As you know, as far as I'm seeing, I don't know what your perception is, James or or Zach. Probably can give more insight. Yeah, I I think we're doing really well. I think uh, you know we didn't have a medal last Olympics, unfortunately, but 
I think we have a lot of talent coming through that, you know, we could definitely do some damage at the uh, the next uh, Olympics next year, hopefully. Um, I think it's hard when you look at it as an overall. Um, like you could say, you know, we only have, what, five, four or five Olympic medals over 70 years of doing judo in Canada. But I think there's a lot behind that in terms of, number one, it's not in the schools. It's not marketed well. Like we're only just starting now to really – push it and get it out there and get it on the street signs and get people talking. I mean, we just hosted our Grand Prix last year. It was a huge success, uh, stuff like that. So I think, you know, you got to give it time. And uh, I just, I think that this is the only way we can, it's going to be able to function. I think this talk of trying to fight the system and decentralize it, I just don't think it's ever going to happen. I think it's, and it's silly. I think because, you know, you guys were lucky in the UK where, you had all these clubs with still great partners, great players, and, you know, great coaching. You could make it work. It That doesn't exist in Canada if you're a middle heavyweight. If you're lightweight, like I said, maybe. But if you're serious and you're middle heavy, you've got to move. Yeah. But, I mean, it's arguable in the UK that it doesn't work to some degree. You know, we went for such a long time without any results. And the last two Olympics, um, we've had... Great performances from individual players. Absolutely, yeah. But centralization is something they've pushed a little bit more this cycle, and I think it will be interesting to see kind of that outcome from from our perspective. I'm gonna throw I'm gonna throw a spanner in the works because I'm gonna totally deviate from our our kind of planned schedule. Um, you you talked about competing in Montreal in your your home Grand Prix. How was that? Oh, that was. That was a riot. Uh, unfortunately, I, I didn't feel I competed at my best, which is always really frustrating. But just to be at home and have my family in the stands and, uh, yeah, that was a phenomenal experience. I thought Judo Canada did a fantastic job with the organization. I thought the center, the setup, everything was just on point, fantastic. So um, I'd be super excited if we ever get another opportunity to host a Grand Prix again for sure. What's it like being a Canadian, I guess, North American athlete competing on that kind of world circuit? I noticed that over the last Olympic cycle, you've only had five uh, tournaments in North America. Um, and I mean, you're talking about five and a half hour drive to, to, to go home. But some of those were still like an eight hour flight, I think. Um, what's it? How hard is it? traveling having to travel to europe to compete and that kind of thing um it's definitely been easier this last quad for <laughs> a few reasons one in particular <laughs> uh <laughs> i i started dating a uh a german girl <laughs> who i'm quite serious with now uh amelie stole 57 and so what happened was uh she also was a very successful player and so i would kind of pack up my things and use Munich, where she's from training, as a base, and then do what you guys would do and hop all over to compete and really save a lot of money. And I could do it for long stints because I didn't mind, you know, living with my girlfriend. It was always, you know, it's always great. So <laughs> I uh, I didn't mind it. I could do, say, like six weeks in Europe and do four events, a training camp, and save a lot of money and not mind it. Whereas I think, yeah, if you talk to other players, like I know Antoine, after a few weeks in Europe gets really antsy and wants to go back home, uh, stuff like that. So I'm super lucky in that sense. Uh, it's helped me in uh, save money. It's helped with my uh, mental for sure, being able to stay for a long time. And uh, 
yeah, no, it's great. So what's it like training in Germany then? How's that it's, been? It's very different. It's it's I find it's really cool and interesting being able to see um I have a real passion for coaching and I'd love to get involved uh, at some point when I'm done my career. And so I find it super fascinating to see what like head coaches, everybody has a different philosophy. Um, they teach us, I'm doing some of my training now for coaching. It's called NCCP. And one of the things they teach is that every coach is going to have his two to three important things that he feels is is really important. And then you go with that. And that's kind of how you develop your style. So, you know, some coaches might not feel Nawaz is really important, but then others are really going to push it, stuff like that. So I find in Germany when I'm training there uh, with the men's team in Munich, their big thing, um, <laughs> it also is kind of relatable to how they fight, <laughs> but uh, very explosive, like short burst, fast trainings in terms of like many drills centered around three Uchikomi, fast as you can, hard throw every 30 seconds, stuff like that. Very, you know, the first minute, two minutes all out, but no real longevity uh, no real, I find they don't do a lot of tactical in terms of gripping, stuff like that. It's very power-based, very intense. I think that's a really interesting thing for you to say because it um, mirrors every practice and fight I've ever had with a, with, with a lot of German, German <laughs> fighters. That's, you know, very, very sharp on the grips, very, very quick to attack, yeah. um, very explosive. It's, it's certainly a type, you know, like the second you're saying that, I'm just thinking Bischoff. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. How does that fit with your style of judo? Uh, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, which is actually great though, because it's, you know, it's a weakness. It's something I got to work on for sure. Uh, North Americans, I'm sure you both can agree with this having fought any of us. Textbook slow starters. We do not come out of the gun sharp, ready to go. We're always half asleep, no matter how great the warm up is. It's the way we are. We're, we train for Michelle Almeida had a fantastic analogy where he said, North American judo, you guys train for a marathon. Europeans train for a sprint. <laughs> so, you know, we I'm a horrible slow starter, and so being in that kind of environment is really great in terms of trying to always come out faster, harder, being able to match that pace right away when you butt heads, but uh, definitely something that does not come easy for me. <laughs> that, that links quite nicely into something I wanted to chat about, because Zach, you and I chat occasionally outside this um – Outside this podcast, you know, um, I like to think of friends. <laughs> you can say whatever you like to James afterwards. It's fine. Um, but, but, you know, we've spoken a little bit about about the psychology of sort of sport and winning and stuff. And I have somewhat of an interest. I'm sort of studying about psychology. James has about eight degrees in psychology. Um, do, you, do you think that the sort of difference between German judo that you just explained and yours is physiological? Is it psychological? Like, can you train it? Can you train it? Physically, mentally? You know, that's a that's a fantastic question because I'll use my girlfriend as an example. Uh, she's in great shape. She does a ton of circuit training. She does high anaerobic training. She does uh, all this stuff. But I've noticed that after four minutes in a match, her cardio is not the best. Golden score is not is not great for her. And I'm always really shocked at like, but why? Like you, you train really hard. Like, you know, you do circuit training, you do all this stuff, you run like, I don't understand. So I'm starting to think, Pat, maybe it's, uh, I don't know if it's just something in the, like the, uh, what's the word you use, Pat? The uh, physiology, the, yeah, like, I yeah. just don't know if it's the way they are because I know Michelle said the same thing. 
he trained his whole career and was super successful and he couldn't go past four or five minutes. He was gassed out every time after that. And he said he would lose matches to guys that he knew he was better than, but he just couldn't stand up anymore. <laughs> he was so tired. And I'm like, and in my mind, I'm just like, how? Like, that's such a, for me, it's such an easy fix. Like, you attack the problem. Okay, I, my cardio is not great. Let's work on this. But like I said, you know, my Amelie trains really hard and her cardio just, you know, after five minutes, that's, that's it. So I'm always like, yeah, it's definitely a great question. I think it's interesting though like in terms of just tactical differences there's um ah oh, was it jens jens pulver i don't know if you guys are mma fans jens pulver uh evil early days yeah, of mma yeah. i'm sure it was him who so mma is like three five minute rounds or five five minute rounds but he used to talk about he would only train for that, that first five minute round and he knew if it was i'm sure it was him i might have got this wrong but he knew if it was going out of that first minute round wasn't winning that fight yeah because it and yeah it, it perhaps ties into the national or the regional style um yeah. and mean, again i'm not I, I know where you were going pat you may be thinking is there a is there like psychological makeup to it or well i mean first of all i'm thinking god i wish judo was five five minute rounds oh god i'd have loved that so much <laughs> if we had to do five five minute rounds with the same opponent oh it would have been great can um, you imagine how long an event we're going for yeah, that, I mean, imagine Vizé. There's <laughs> over 100, over 100 people week. in 7th Street at Vizé. <laughs> um, you're, you're there till 9pm anyway, as it is. Um, I'm, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's there's the sort of natural physiological makeup of each individual. And then um, even within, you know, even on top of that, there is how, how the centre trains, how the country style of judo is. Um, but I do think even, you know, on... on to add into that psychologically, there's definitely a part. I don't know what you guys think. A part to play that that you can train. That you know. I I mean, you you said that your your coach Michelle trained. So no, you, like knew in the fifth minute that that he'd be struggling. And James used the example of someone that only trained for the first round. I mean, my career was just training for the last minute of a contest when the big scary Russian was tired. Like that, you know, that was my that was my my experience of of high level judo. I don't know what, you know, and psychologically, I thought, you know, oh, three minutes are gone. You're mine. Um, so I, I feel the same way. I, I I have decent conditioning and more of an endurance player. So I know I'm like you, Pat. If I can, if I'm fighting a guy, oh, man, if I'm fighting uh, uh, Igonikov and I can somehow hold him off for that first three minutes, I'm like, OK, I know that you're going to uh, like die as we go into golden score. And this is where I can maybe like look to score now. Um, whereas they're the opposite. They're like, oh shit, like the Canadians here, Bob, I got him, like, I got to get this done early because this guy's going to, you know, love to go five or six minutes. See, Zach, you say that, but you're also capable of throwing people sort of start to the middle of the fight as the, as the Tajiki boy that you fought in the Grand Slam in Abu Dhabi mm-hmm. found out. Also love the fact that the Tomonagi came out of nowhere because it, yeah, it was, it was great, but like it wasn't at the end of a fight, was it? No, that's true. I, uh, Thank you for that, Pat. I, I had been working on Tomoe is one of those throws that uh, I don't know if uh, you guys can really relate, but I would see it all through my career and always in my head I'd go, man, that's gorgeous. That's a nice throw. And I'm like, I wish I could do that, but I just can't. <laughs> I know my body. I know my weaknesses. I just can't do it. Like I would dabble with trying a few times and I'm like, no, I, did, I can't. Like, and I remember seeing players pull it off, uh, I know Nick Del Popolo had a really good one for a long time there, and 
uh, Alex Turner, other players like that, and uh, Craig Fallon. Um, and I just would watch and be like, man, like that's so cool. And I would practice with like different groups. I could never get it. And then my first experience in Japan ever, uh, 2016, the Olympic team was gone. Uh, the INS had kind of cleared out our national center. And so long story short, I ended up going to this uh, low-level university in Japan for my first time, first trip alone. <laughs> and I went for about three weeks alone, kind of trial by fire. And they were super friendly. They took me in as one of their own. They loved me, and I loved the training. It was really hard, but while I'm there, um, I have classical judo, and so I had a really hard time throwing these guys on soto, these righties, and that's kind of my bread and butter. And I'm like, man, like these guys are just like – I forget they're born and raised with this, so like this doesn't scare them. And so they would just kept giving this kind of reaction that eventually I just kind of saw something there, and I thought – what if I just tried to like go on my back and put my foot up? Like it might work. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I tried it one night on some guy and I put him over my head, but then knocked him just kind of on his side. And I went, you look at that. Like that actually wasn't that bad. And so from there, it just kind of took off. And then I really started like studying, studying, studying. I'm very analytical. So I would watch all kinds of tape on players that had good tamoy and their setups, their movements, what they looked for. And then I kind of crafted it into my own. And lo and behold, uh, at the Grand Slam in a clutch moment, it came out. So, Yeah. That was a nice throw against a very highly highly ranked player. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, oh, thanks, Pat. Yeah, it was great. great, to, great James, shot. you've dabbled in a bit of Tomori Nagy, haven't you? Only Yoko Tomori. Only Yoko Tomori. Yeah. I wouldn't, was it- wouldn't bother with Tomori. Waste of time. Can't do it. <laughs> Um, kind of talking about some of your results. Last year, you ended up with your first Pan Am's Pan American bronze medal. So congratulations. Thank you. Up until that point, had you had three fifth places in the Pan American Championships? Yeah, it still stings every time. <laughs> he How? As if he didn't know. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for that, James. He might have had four. He might have had four. I don't know. Yeah. Um, how was that going into that match? Was there, yeah, a bit of a, how did you feel going into your fourth Pan American medal fight? Having been on the receiving uh, three times. Well, uh, I'll start by, by, uh, briefing that, uh, I know from just having a lot of European friends like Pat that a lot of European <laughs> players like to make fun of how weak Pan Ams is <laughs> compared to Europeans, and they are not wrong. They're not wrong. Not going to name names, but they're not wrong. Um, <laughs> but 90, has, for the last five to six years, has been one of the toughest uh, divisions in Pan Am Union. It's been just – some years it's been crazy. And so uh, I always know that going in. Uh, last year, starting in about February, March – yeah, maybe a bit earlier. Michelle came to me and just really put this kind of pressure on me and this this preface with, you need to take a Pan Am medal this year. We are now starting qualification. You're not in a great spot. This needs to get it done. Like, this needs to happen. And I remember just kind of thinking, like, yeah, trust me, I know, but thank you. <laughs> and then I remember a bunch of other, like, veteran players. Like, we have the uh, the great pleasure of training with Nicolas Bresson, he was a phenomenal 90-kilo French player that used to fight Winston Gordon. And a gentleman. Yes, great guy. And yeah. we're super lucky. He moved to Canada with his family in Montreal, and he works for Judo Canada now. And this guy no still way. kicks our butts. 
yeah, he still kicks my butt and gives me a great fight at age, you know, in his mid-late 30s. And so how strong is his gripping? It's ridiculous. Great player. I love his judo. Um, also hate yeah. it at the same time. <laughs> and so he's one of those guys that kind of came to me and was just like, hey, like, you need to get it done. Like, two months ago here, that's your goal. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Like, <laughs> I, I love when people think that this isn't already on my mind or, you know, like, <laughs> already we don't already think of this like duh <laughs> you know yeah, just just but, go uh, win that medal you, yeah, you, you've clearly yeah. not been trying before just go that. do it this that, time about, about waffles this whole time <laughs> <laughs> but um you know it's it's from a place of love and stuff so i totally get that um i super appreciate it but uh i knew maybe one month about six to eight weeks out that based on the seating I was going to match up in the quarterfinals with Colton Brown, the 90 kilo American. And Colton and I have a really weird but awesome relationship in the sense that he is a few years younger than me, or sorry, older than me. And he went to Rio already. And when I was 81 on the tour back before Rio, he was already an established player and he was so nice to me. And I really looked up to him. I thought he was a great guy, great player, headed himself well. I was like, I was like a fanboy kind of thing. And then all of a sudden I move up to 90. Now we become kind of rivals, but we've always kept it very clean and still really good friends off the mats. We can still have beers and chat, but at the end of the day, I really want to beat this guy. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we had previous going into last year, Pan Am's wars where it's like a 10 minute match, 11 minute match. And he is. He is a tough guy to beat because he has an iron will similar to me where he's not going to back down. He will not give up or let you know that he's getting tired, which it's hard for him to do. He has great conditioning and he's a worker. So I know he puts in the work outside of when I can't see him. I know he's ready to go. I know it's going to be a tough fight. So what happened was Michelle and I kind of attacked this Pan Am thing last year where we sat down and went, okay, the top players that I got to get through are mostly lefties. There's one that's a righty. It's Macedo. They're mostly lefties. I'm historically not great right on left because my entire career coming up in Ontario, there are not many lefties next to none. So that's one of the weaker points of my game. Uh, so then we decided to dedicate all technical sessions to right on left, just right on left. And we came up with strategies, gripping scenarios, where the key points are going to be, where I was going to feel comfortable. And then I ended up getting injured right before Pan Am's, uh, like maybe a week or two out, and I couldn't do judo. And Colton actually came over to help train with us. He comes quite a bit. And I remember him on the mats. And uh, uh, if he ends up listening to this, it'll be really funny. <laughs> but I remember sitting there, and I'm watching him, and I'm just kind of sitting there like this, studying and I end up walking over to Michelle, who's on the mats, and I'm in my street clothes, and I grab him, and I'm like, I have a, an idea. And he just is like, now? And I'm like, hear me out. So I'm like, I am 99% sure I can throw this guy with Jumata. Like, I see how he reacts when Antoine's with him. I see how he reacts when, when Louis is with him. I'm telling you, I think I can throw him with Jumata. Like, we got to figure this out, like, in this next three weeks. There's, there's something there. And I remember him being like, okay, I'll sleep on this, and we'll figure this out tomorrow morning. And so I remember right away I started doing more tape studying and the next few days were instantly all about the position we were going to look for to get the Uchimata. And uh, lo and behold, we get into Pan Ams. Uh, I win my first round fairly easy. Colton wins his first. We go into quarters. 
Um, Michelle and I had actually just reviewed that day before. This is the moment you got to look for when you get that position, you take the shot because it might, you might not get it again. And I ended up getting that position and I slammed Colton with one of the best Uchimatas I've ever done. And it was a phenomenal moment. It was just a great, uh, uh, a feeling to know that all that hard work, all that, uh, you know, attention to detail had all kind of accumulated and paid off. And I was able to put him away in the first two minutes with this spectacular Chimata that I pulled off. And then um, that put me into the semis with the Cuban, uh, Felipe Morales, who was world silver medalist. And I remember I was on such a high from beating Colton and not only beating Colton, but everything kind of just lining up and beating him how I had planned and, and whatnot. And uh, the Cuban is one guy that I am like 0-6 with. But every single time, it is like nail biter, one shito, like five minutes into OT, it's tight. So it's always the hardest for me when I lose and I'm like, again. So I'm fighting him and it goes super well. Same thing. We're in golden score. I decided to take a risk and he countered me and ended up putting another one in the L bracket <laughs> against him. And I'm in the, uh, the bronze against this Puerto Rican player that I'd never fought before. But I grabbed him in the Dusseldorf training camp that year, and I remember he slammed me multiple times because he is half Japanese, and he trains full-time in Japan. And uh, he has some serious, nice Japanese judo, and he's a lefty. So I'm like, okay, I don't know how I really approach this because if I tangle with him like classical, he probably is going to throw me. So Michelle and I kind of talked about it, and... Uh, right out the gate, I tried to come high and, and kind of overpower him, and he put me right on his hip, kind of like Shani Elna has. And I remember just kind of thinking, like, whoa, boy. <laughs> and I spun out of it somehow, thank God. And then he ended up throwing me next exchange with an Uchimata, like a really nice, slick Uchimata for Wazari. And I'm like, well, I'm I'm now down. And I ended up coming back and countering him, uh, countering him once for Wazari to tie it and then throwing him for a second Wazari to win later on. And it was... Uh, I was overcome with emotion because there was all this pressure that had been on me to get it done. And as you guys had said or had seen, like I hadn't won a medal at Pan Ams for year on year on end, and it's always been close. But that was the year where everybody was like, "Get it done." So I did it, and I remember I was a bit sad though later that night because Michelle had kind of prefaced with, "If you get this medal, you could win your funding back." Because the way our federation decided to go about things was that. I don't know the ins and outs. I don't know the details of money, what happened, stuff like that. But basically, once qualification started, Nico told everybody that unless you were in the eight top 18 and qualified, you were not going to have funding. And so I just kind of was like, worst timing ever. I just started going through a real slump. <laughs> and so I had to fund everything on my own, out of my own pocket. And so Michelle kind of used the Pan Am medal to kind of push me and say, if you get this medal, I'm pretty sure you'll get enough points to get back in top 18 get some money to get out there on the tour. And I'm like, okay. So I was a bit sad when we sat down that night in the airport and realized I wasn't back in top 18 yet. (laughs) Still had to keep going. But uh, yeah, no, it was an amazing experience for sure. No, congratulations. Um, So where are you at now? Olympics has been put back a year. Um, is that something you're targeting? I suspect you, if you are, you're, you're waiting for the IGF to come out with what the last few qualification events will look like. Yeah, I, uh, I was in a spot here where, um, I'm really close to getting that quota, the, uh, mm-hmm. the wild card, so to speak, for the Olympics. And so 
<laughs> similar kind of thing. Um, March of this year, yeah, February, March, everybody just kind of came to me and went, all right, Pan Ams, like, again, like, <laughs> like after Pan Ams, the qualification ends, so you get that medal or you're not going. And I'm like, well, here we go again. <laughs> so I remember all this pressure was building, and then I ended up taking a medal at a European Open in Poland right before this virus pandemic hit. And I remember thinking once I took that medal, like, that's it. Like, I got the momentum. Like, I'm going to get it done this year again. Like, here we go. And then, lo and behold, everything gets stopped (laughs) and kind of put, you know, pushed ahead so or pushed back. So, um, yeah, I'm like the the rest of, you know, the world where I'm just waiting for the IGF to post their calendar. Uh, There's a lot of hearsay. There's a lot of gossip. There's a lot of, you know, things being said. But... We really don't know anything as of right now. So, yeah, I mean, it'd be easy to get caught up in listening to every single rumor and yeah. either getting excited or, you know, letting the the pressure start to mount right now. And, and until they come out and say, "Look, you've got such and such left. You've you've kind of got to got to let it go." Is it um, is it has it been a struggle? kind of letting go from a point of momentum or is it is it something you're used to now you've you've kind of adjusted to you know i'll be honest james uh that first like i want to say so we we got shut down mid-march right up until beginning of may i was doing absolutely fine i i had all these like small challenges i was doing i was talking to i was actually talking to pat and katie about like my running because I was coming up with all these little goals on how to be a better runner and make these times. And I remember I was so excited about it and I was listening to a lot of podcasts. I was reading. I was like, yeah, I'm doing well. But then that only lasts so long mm-hmm. before it's like, okay, this is old <laughs> or, you know, I-, I want my life back now. So it was only, I'm, I'm really fortunate in the sense that I didn't hit, you know, the lack of motivation and the depression and anxiety early. I only started to really experience it beginning of May where it's like, okay, I, now I'm kind of sick of running. <laughs> uh, I'm not a good runner to begin with. I don't enjoy running, and I'm I'm running every day or every other day. Uh, podcasts are great, but I I don't want to listen to podcasts every day. Uh, I like reading, but I was going through books like super fast, and now I'm just kind of slowed down. So it's definitely been more of a struggle now these last few weeks. But uh, we've got confirmation from the government that uh, our national center could potentially. Uh, open up here mid end of June. Uh, okay. That would be really great if uh, I can get back in just the gym, you know, and be able to have some semblance of what was. Zach, first off, the time that I saw you running in a sweatsuit in Cancun in the dark just after there was a shooting, you looked like you were having a great time. So I don't know what you're talking about. Way too much weight to lose during running. Oh boy. And no sauna suit either. No sauna suit. I did it without a sauna suit. Don't know how, but yeah. Did you go old school? Sorry, did you go old school? Did you put a bin bag on? No, I just did a rash guard and a bunch of t-shirts and a hoodie and a toque and mittens and went out in plus 30 degree weather in this heat humidity and ran into Pat and almost couldn't see him. I was delirious. <laughs> so, so for context, my my training partner, Jack Smith, and I had finished fighting Um very early on in the day and had uh had a had a lunch had a late liquid lunch um and later on we were sort of walking back to the hotel and you know you're on your guard a little bit in cancun because you know it, it, there's plenty of of tourists but there's also 
you know, less savory neighborhoods. And so this guy, this sort of like heavy set guy in like what looks like a big ass hoodie is like trudging towards us and we're like sort of eyeballing and being like, Do we need to be like ready? And then, we're, <laughs> and, then and then we're like, Oh no, it's Zach, how's it going? And you you were just like, Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm good, thanks. And Love I, my I, life. <laughs> yeah. Had that sweatsuit um joy in your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> How much do you cut, Zach? How much do you have to cut to make nineties? Uh, if I'm in shape, uh, it really depends on where I am. If I'm in Europe for a long stint, like I was early this year and stuff, and I've made weight a few times, it's not bad at all. I sit at like 92, 93. But if I'm in Montreal training full time, I'm taking a lot of protein. I usually sit at like 95. And then that first cut is always like, it's not horrible. I've definitely done worse, but it's not enjoyable. I like food. <laughs> I like to eat. I, I, you know, I don't like to be told no. <laughs> so I have to dehydrate a bit and just having to get in a bath day of weigh in is not something I, I look forward to, but there's definitely worse players out there than me that struggle a lot more than I do. So I'm not going to complain too much. <laughs> for, um, for some sort of some of the listeners that haven't heard James talk too much about his own career, James, um, has, has dabbled in many weight categories across my years of knowing him. Um, currently, I think he's sitting over 100 kilos, but that wasn't all the ca- always the case, was it, James? So I, yeah, no, I, I, I was an 81 kilo junior, and I started seniors at 81s, and I think I sat at 92 kilos when I was 81 <laughs> kilos. And then when I fought 90, I, I moved up to 90s after a particularly bad series of weight cuts, like back to back. I didn't do it. I didn't do it very smart. <laughs> um, and I went from 92 to about 98 kilos in the space of, I don't know, two or three weeks. It was so disheartening because I thought, oh, 92 kilos, that would be a dream. Um, yeah. And then obviously a couple of years after that, I moved up to under hundreds and before, so went to the Olympics at under hundreds. And then and then moved up to over hundreds just for a few nationals because you wanted to win win trials at over hundreds. Is that right? Yeah, briefly. It was uh, three three weight champion Pat. That's... So national titles at nineties, under hundreds, and over hundreds. Yeah. What's funny, Pat, is everybody in my last year of eighty ones. I don't know if you guys can relate, but everybody was like kind of telling me like, okay, you need to move up. Like this next quad after Rio is going to start. You cannot stay eighty one anymore. Um, but Michelle was dead set against it, <laughs> dead set against it. He was like, why would you want to fight Iliadis? And I'm like, well, I'd rather fight Iliadis strong and healthy than fighting, I don't know, Owen Lizzie or Tom Reed when I'm like sticking bones. Like, <laughs> well, it's great that you had the attitude though. Like moving weight for me was like a really, was a huge barrier. Um, and, and similarly, Pat, I know you moved up from 66 to 73, but it was very much a, thing of oh I'm definitely going to be stronger at the lighter weight because by the time I've rehydrated I'll be so much bigger than the people I'm facing I think there's a there's a sport wide uh, psychology of you just fight the lightest weight you can make <laughs> um, regardless of anything else I mean like you know you you're both heavyweights um, at different levels James you're you know you're a couple of centimeters taller than I am um, but at 66 <laughs> <laughs> at 66s I was just ridiculous like I mean I was not a big strong 
muscular 73er. So you can imagine how skinny I must have looked at 66s because I was the same height. But for years, you know, I'm sticking at 66s. And then when I moved up, I was like, oh, my goodness, this is what food tastes like. This is fun. Uh, I can, like, smile again. The only one I heard of that was close to Pat or worse is uh, Colin Oates. So he was 66s and moved to Edinburgh and was still 66s while he was there. Um, and, yeah, I mean, like, I fought a few of the same tournaments with Colin, stayed with him, and he had to sweat hard. And then I think, you know, when he when he retired, you know, and, and went a little bit heavier than, than 66 kilos, I think it was just a bit of a relief because, I mean, he cut hard. Yeah. Was there was there an, I don't know, a Romanian guy who, he might have moved to Canada, it might have been the, the States, um, Chipe, Quipe, something like that. Oh, Chupe. Chupe, Chupe. But he Chupe, fought yeah. in Europe at 73 kilos. And then I remember him fighting under hundreds and plus hundreds after he <laughs> big moved. Big guy now, very big guy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but he was still competing at that weight, and he was a, he was a European medalist, I'm sure, at under 73s. But he still competed after he moved to yeah North America, Canada. That's I think living the, Canada. Yeah. that's living his dream. That. And one of those guys whose head just got bigger and bigger. The... <laughs> he that's a guy that I didn't know much about. Uh, uh, he didn't like me very much in our first interaction. <laughs> I think he's quite a character and. Um, Anyway, great guy, but uh, he, I knew, <laughs> I knew like briefly about him. I didn't know like his background, and then I just kind of looked him up one day and went, "Oh man, like he he was a, he was on the tour. He was a good player." And I'm like, "He was also like a lot smaller." <laughs> and then my coach that I trained under for quite some time in my career, Jason Morris from the U.S., I lived and trained there off and on for years. Uh, actually, fought him, and I remember asking like, "Fight Chupin?" He's like, "Man." He footstepped me so hard one time that I thought I went through the floor because this guy felt <laughs> he's like this guy looked round and stuff in hundreds, but he was a brick house. He's like you couldn't move this guy, and I'm like, he looks it. <laughs> yeah. No, great player. Um, Zach, I'm gonna I'm gonna start calling this short. I think we're just coming up to the hour mark. But um, if people want to find out a little bit more about you, if they want to follow you on your 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 journey towards the Olympics and beyond that. Um, where can they find you on social media? Uh, I'm on Twitter, Instagram. Uh, my name is uh, just ZachBert93. You can go on there. Uh, I'm not. I don't post a ton. Uh, I'm more uh, quote unquote low key. <laughs> I'm kind of more private. I'm not a big uh, posting what I'm doing all the time kind of thing. But uh, you can still follow uh, me in what I'm up to and stuff like that there. Best of luck. Uh, I hope you're back in training soon. It's been absolutely fantastic having you on, so thank you so much, mate. Thank Pat. you so much for having me. I Cheers. really enjoyed it, guys. Pat, Cheers, good job. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I, I, wasn't too, I wasn't too inappropriate. I didn't ca- cause any fights. It was good. <laughs> You've done amazing. Guys, thanks so much. Ciao, guys.